Well, we're in the, our study in the book of Ephesians today. We're still in chapter 4, and um, what we're dealing with today, let me bring up the let me bring up the slides here in just a second. <clears throat> Ties the the book of Ephesians uh, together, as you see by this slide. Now you have a copy of this, and I've, I'm just going to do this over and over again as we go through the respective parts. The sound doctrine of chapters one through three of Ephesians is to produce the godly living of chapters four, five, and six. And the key term in chapters 4, 5, and 6, and it's how I outline those chapters, is organized around the term walk. And so we already saw that, and we're kind of in the middle of that, the walk of unity. And we're going to be here at least part of the hour, if not most of the hour. And then we'll move to the second area. We have already uh, gone through these verses, so I'm not going to repeat them, but you'll note as we talk here, as we read here, that Paul is tying in the theme of the unity of the body of Christ to the Trinity. And again, you copied this, we've gone through this, but the Trinitarian God is integral to the unity of the church. One body, energized by the Holy Spirit, united to one Lord by faith and baptism with one Father supreme over, operative through and in each member. I just summarized that. And then as we move into uh, this passage, this theme, it's just number three here, of diversity in the unity of the Godhead. Remember our definition, God is one essence of three persons who differ relationally and functionally. And that theme of diversity in unity is transferred in the way Paul is arguing from the doctrine of the Trinity to the doctrine of the church. And then last time, we went through, as Paul does here at 7 and following, uh, quoting from Psalm 68, the picture of Jesus as the great victor, his triumphant, victorious parade, so to speak. It's all metaphorical fit, um, figures of speech, but nonetheless, his triumphal victory over sin, death, and, and Satan enables him now to be seated at the right hand of the Father in triumph. And so, I want to pick up then in verse 11. Because of his triumph over sin and death and Satan, because of his exaltation at right hand of the Father, he gives gifts to the church. And that's what Paul is saying in Psalm 68, as he quotes from that. The ascension leads to him, his ascension, which is his exaltation to the right hand of the Father, leads him giving gifts to the church. We read this last time, and I'm not going to read it again, uh, the entire passage, but if you look just at verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers, I will say more about that in just a minute, to equip the saints. Now, I want to stop right there. So let's go, and you have a copy of this as well, let's go to this PowerPoint slide. Because what I want to do is I want to look at how this would be applied in the ancient church when Paul wrote the, the epistle of the Ephesians, and then how we would apply that to the present church in the 21st century. So if you, again, look back at the verse, verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherds and teachers. Now let me comment on that last shepherds and teachers. I read from the ESV translation, and they've chosen to translate that term that sometimes translated pastor to shepherd, because the actual Greek term is shepherd. And that's really helpful for you and me, that the, the metaphor that God chooses for the pastor of a local church is a shepherd, one who shepherds, cares for, nurtures his flock, and the phrase itself, now I, I'm going to give you a term that you're going to be unfamiliar with, but it helps us to understand how we can really translate this fully. Shepherds and teachers is a hendeities, and what that means is pastors who are teachers. In other words, the, the term teacher modifies the term shepherd pastor. And so sometimes uh, I have another translation in my office 
who translates this, the pastor-teacher, because the Hendiades is the teacher is modifying, helping to further explain one of the roles of a shepherd, of a pastor, to teach. And so if we apply this then, put it in these brackets, I'm looking at the upper half now of this slide, you have the issue of authority, that authority is the apostles and prophets. Again, going back to the verse, the apostles and the prophets. The apostles, they this that's a limited group. It's not a very large group in the early church. It is those who have been commissioned by Jesus Christ with his authority. They speak for God. Today in 2021, there is no apostle where God is speaking through that person, giving new revelation. Nowhere in the Bible does it under, are we to understand that that is a functioning role in the church. It was a foundational role. That's what Paul is helping us to understand. Jesus ascends, and he dispenses his authority to the apostles. Prophets are those who speak about God. Prophetes in Greek those who are proclaiming the revealed truth of God. So the authority of the local church, in terms of Jesus giving gifted individuals to the local church, was signified by the apostles who spoke for God and by the prophets who speak about God. Then you have a second function, which is the proclaimers those who are now proclaiming the truth, the evangelists, and most of those you see in the book of Acts, for example, which we studied a couple years ago, they're itinerant. That means they are traveling around. And again, if you go back, apostles, prophets, and the evangelists, you could go to the book of Acts and look, for example, at Acts chapter 8. You see Philip the evangelist. He's traveling throughout Samaria. Then he's taken by, by the Holy Spirit down to meet the Ethiopian eunuch at Gaza. He proclaims the truth to him, and he's back up in Samaria. So that role of a traveling itinerant evangelist. And then thirdly, I've called the provider, the provider gift, the pastor-teacher, those who shepherd the local sheep, following through on the metaphor, those who shepherd the flock, those who are pastors shepherding and teaching. So it's, again, pastors who are teachers or pastor teachers. That's the best way to really bring that into the English language. So again, God, God the Son ascends back to God the Father, exalted at his right hand, and he gives gifts. He gives gifted individuals to the early church, those who have the authority of God, those who proclaim the message of God, and those who provide for the flock of God. How do we apply that to the 21st century? Where is the authority of the local church? It is in the New Testament of God. The New Testament speaks for God. There are, I believe this very strongly, there is no functioning office of apostle those who have been chosen, commissioned by, and given the authority of God. You don't see leaders doing messianic miracles anymore because that age has passed. That's why when we studied the book of Acts, we looked at Acts as a transitional book between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. So our authority in the 21st century is the Word of God, and the church spiritual leaders, the New Testament calls them elders, speak about God. The proclaimers, we still have that functioning role, missionaries, evangelists, who are taking the gospel to the world, following the mandate of Jesus in Acts 1.8, start in Jerusalem, go to Judea, then Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And the providers, it's the same, the pastor, teacher, along with the elders and deacons, they're the officers of the local church who take care of the sheep. A central passage on this is 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, 
which describe and detail the role of spiritual leadership in the local church and their function in the local church as they provide. You have everything from the teaching of the revealed Word of God to you to the the deacons who provide and care for the benevolence fund, I'm using modern examples, uh, the, and dispensing the benevolence fund in a local church for those in need, uh, dealing with the church property. I mean, it's that kind of role. They're providing for the flock. And so this passage that we're looking at in these, this, this one verse, verse 11, is extremely important for you and me 2,000 years later to understand what is the function and role in the local church. And again, I would argue using this slide, it's an issue of authority. It's the proclaimers taking the message throughout the world, and it's the providers, those who are caring for, meeting the needs as the shepherds of the local church. Because remember, the church in the New Testament is an organism, the living body of Jesus Christ, but also an organization at the local level. The organized local church with clear leadership responsibilities, clear stewardship responsibilities, primarily among them teaching and, and, and edifying the believers who are the flock. Okay, now, I've done a lot in these first few moments, and we've only been in one verse. But this verse, verse 11, unpacks what Paul means by gifts in verse 9, as he quotes Psalm 68, the measure of Christ's gift in verse 7. The Lord Jesus, exalted at the right hand of the Father, gives gifted leaders to the church. He's going to talk about their function and purpose in verse 12 and following. But I want to make sure you're with me in what we've done with verse 11 uh, and trying to unpack it and apply it to today. All right, I'm going to go back to the text. Are there questions? I have a question. Um, this doesn't relate to the unpacking, but um, where does... Where does Paul fit in on that upper tier? He he refers to himself as an apostle. That's correct. He is an apostle. That's correct. Yeah. Okay. That's correct. So, all right. Yep. Thank you. You're welcome. Good. Good question. All right. Is everybody with me? And again, what I've tried to do is apply this then to the local church and its responsibilities in 2021. All right. Now, I told you last week, to, this is an extremely important passage for you and me in understanding the responsibilities and function and purposes of the local church. Now, look with me then at verse 12. You see these four categories of service and ministry that the Lord Jesus has given gifted individuals to the church. What's the purpose? To equip the saints for the work of ministry. All right, now, again, that, that is just extremely important, and I am just, um, I don't know how else to say this, I'm just amazed at how many people, even in leadership in many local churches today, don't understand what is the purpose of all this. Why are there proclaimers and providers and this authority centered in the New Testament? What is the purpose of all this? If you would ask me, and our, our function as leaders in the 21st century church is to make sure this is clear, that it's clarified with no ambiguity, no uncertainty, no lack of clarity. It is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So if you go to this chart that you've seen now a number of times in our, our session this morning already, when you look at this issue of authority, the issue of proclaimers, the issue of providers, to nurture, to, 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 to enable God to work through these leaders, for what purpose? So that the flock does the ministry. <laughs> It's not just the lead pastor who does the ministry of the church. 
It is all people in the church, the flock. And so Paul calls them the saints. And remember, that's a very common New Testament term. It is used in reference to all people who have put their faith in Christ. It's not just a very small, elite, super spiritual group of people. The saints is a, a collective, comprehensive noun that it captures everyone who's put their faith in Christ. They're a saint. That's how Paul addresses the, uh, the church at Corinth. He addresses the church at, at Ephesus. That's how we think about people in the church. They're saints. And so the function of these four areas of responsibility is to equip the saints for the ministry. All right, what does that mean for the work of the ministry? What ministry? Well, caring for and nurturing the members of the flock, helping to meet the physical needs. Let me think with you for a moment. Just go back to Acts chapter 6 for a minute. And if you look in those early verses, I believe it's the first six verses of Acts chapter 6, the apostles in Jerusalem, that would be Peter, James, and John, perhaps a few others, they are being overwhelmed with the responsibilities of an exploding church in, this, in Jerusalem. And a group of Hellenistic Jews come to them, and they, they have some grievance issues, they have some problems, and immediately what they do is they call a group of individuals that become known as deacons, diakonos, deacons, and what are they going to do? They're going to meet these needs. They're going to care for some of these people. And then it states so that the apostles will have time to study the Word of God and pray. And so here you start to see, oh, I understand how this is to work. So it is the saints in the local body, the sheep in the local body of Christ, that, that local church. They're being equipped, and we'll see a little more of what that means to be equipped, but they're being equipped to do the work of ministry. It isn't just the hired professionals that you pay a salary that do all the ministry. Everybody's involved. So what would that mean today? Well, it would mean, for example, you would have quite a few people doing the work of ministry in, in serving and ministering and teaching to children from the nursery all the way up to college age. They have all kinds of volunteers who are responsible for ministering to those age groups. A number of churches have very special ministries to married couples. Who folk, we, What we try to do is when a couple is married, a young couple is married in our church, we try to, it's informal, but link them up with a married couple who has been married for a while so that they can learn and be counseled and, extending, and receive some of the wisdom about what's changing now that I'm living with a person that I haven't lived with before, and day in and day out. Uh, it can be, for example, a group of, of very important women's ministries or men's ministries. We have volunteers that are organizing to serve and meet the need. I, I could just go on and on and on. The goal of church leadership is to equip people to minister. It can also involve all of the, the local efforts at evangelism. It is people who are out telling the story of the gospel and inviting people to respond. So you see this very remarkable linchpin block of teaching to understand the purpose of these gifted individuals in the body of Christ, the local body of Christ, to equip the saints for ministry. Four, and this is the end of this, the goal of this, to equip the saints for ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. You could translate that for the edification of the body of Christ, for not only the equipping, but for the edification. Now, Paul does not get into that in this passage, but you would look, for example, at 1 Corinthians 12, and Romans chapter 12, where you see lists of spiritual gifts to promote the unity of the body, the gift of teaching, the gift of, 
of, of, uh, of mercy, the gift of administration, the gift of hospitality. I mean, you could go on and on. All of those equip the saints for ministry and build up the body of Christ. This edification of the body. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, Paul says, Holy Spirit-given gifts are for the edification of the body. They're not for, meaning the church. They're not for you and I exercising our spiritual gift, feeling warm fuzzies, to elevate ourselves, to cultivate pride. If those are the things that are happening, you're abusing the gift. That's what Paul says. So you start to see that Jesus gives gifted individuals to the church to equip the church for ministry and to build up the body, to exhort, to admonish the body of Christ in terms of getting it ready then for verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. So the goal of gifted individuals who equip the saints for ministry and edify the body, this is to foster unity of the faith. Now, we've talked about this before, but that word faith can either mean the act of faith, where you put your faith in Jesus Christ and appropriate his finished work to your life by faith, or it can mean the Christian faith, the, the common the common set of doctrines, the common set of beliefs that everyone agrees on, that is taught in the revealed Word of God. So again, you can start to see how this begins to build, so that as the saints are equipped for ministry, and as things are edifying to the body, and, and as that goal of unity of what is believed, that unity of faith, it's centered around what? Knowledge, of the Son of God. The content, the centralizing content of that Christian faith has everything to do with Jesus. Knowledge of the Son of God, which is one of the reasons, of course, as you know, it is so important for everyone to understand in terms of the body of beliefs, the content of belief. Tell me what you know about Jesus Christ. Why does Paul call him the Son of God? Is he the God-man? What does that mean? What was the nature of his death, burial, and resurrection? Why is that so important? So the, that unity of faith is achieved by the knowledge of the Son of God, clarity of understanding. And this, as you know, is the vital center of Christian doctrine. Everything is tied to how you understand who Jesus is, who he is, what he did, what he accomplished, and what's the future. He promised to come back. Is he coming back? I mean, they're all the things that form the content of the knowledge of the Son of God. So that unity of faith is the first goal. The second goal is maturity to mature manhood. Now, and, and that's, that's gender neutral. That doesn't just mean males, but to the maturity. In other words, spiritual maturity, uh, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Let's talk about that. You have the, first of all, maturity, mature manhood. Okay, now what does that mean? Well, it, it's a term that very... I think very easily understandable for you and me 2,000 years later, because in the development of a human being, it starts with an embryo, then that embryo is born, and then that little baby is infant, can't do anything on its own. Developmentally, it becomes a toddler, then it begins to walk, and then the child, I mean, you just go on and on and on until the child reaches adulthood. In our culture, somewhere between 18 and 21 years of age, so to speak. Well, Paul is saying, and this is really important, because it ties into what you, you had heard me talk about over and over and over again. Sanctification is a process. 
it begins the moment you put your faith in Christ, that is justification, until the Lord comes back for you or you die and go to be with him. Maturity then, it's like that spiritual development where we are achieving and we're growing in, we're maturing, we're becoming spiritually, spiritually mature, if you will. And so how long does that take? Well, it, it, it is not achieved in one day. That's one of the reasons when you go to 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, when you're talking about choosing spiritual leadership in the church, in both passages, Paul says, do not choose a young believer. I don't mean chronologically young. I mean a new believer, whatever their chronological age is. They're not ready. They're not ready. They're not mature. So what you have in this, this incredibly important process that Paul is unpacking in these verses, it's not only unity, it's spiritual maturity. And that is marked by, that is characterized, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, when you read a phrase like that, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, you say amen, because that sounds so spiritually wonderful, so spiritually enriching. But what does that mean? Well, the measure of the stature. Now think, you know, adulthood in the developmental stage of a human being, there's the stature that goes with this. You've grown up. You're as tall as you'll ever be. You're, you're, as, you're as physically fit as you'll ever be. Because they tell us, you know, we, our body starts to deteriorate around the age of 20 or so. But at the point I'm making is this measure of the stature. You're growing up spiritually. You're developing spiritually to the pleroma of Christos. They're the Greek words the fullness of Christ. Now, let me put it this way. If you want to know what would be a measure of growing up spiritually that's characterized by the fullness of Jesus, the fruit of the Spirit, that is a wonderful central passage on what this looks like. Those nine character traits, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, etc., that, that, that characterize the fullness of Christ. Okay, that means the goal of sanctification, Galatians 4.19, Romans 8.29, 2 Corinthians 3.18, the goal of sanctification is being realized in my life. I'm becoming like Jesus, not as God. I'm becoming like Jesus in his character in his temperament, in his qualities, his love, the joy that he exhibited. The pay, I mean, you can just go down that list. So what you see here, now, let me tile this together, 11, 12, and 13. Men, they are, these verses are so important in understanding the local church's purpose. What is my local church to be doing? You have gifted individuals who lead with the purpose of equipping the saints for ministry and promoting, promoting this, this edification of the body. What's the goal? Unity of the faith, centered in Jesus, maturity, you're growing up, and the, the qualities and content of that growing up, you're developing the stature, you're growing up of the fullness of Jesus. You're beginning to exhibit the character traits, the temperament, the qualities of Jesus. You're becoming like Jesus, which is the goal of sanctification. But please note this. This occurs in the local church. It doesn't occur through television. It doesn't occur through social media. It doesn't occur by, by the, the entertainment industry. It doesn't occur in politics. Government doesn't do this. It's the role of the local church. And if the local church does not 
have this clear. You're going to have a flock in the local church that's disoriented, chaotic, and they don't know what they're doing. Uh, our church, the church I'm involved with, takes this very seriously. In the mission statement of our church, we, see G we want to see Jesus transform people through his word, through love prayer, and through loving relationships. It is the local church that is to do this. And so what you see in these verses, 11, 12, and 13, is a central passage in the function of the local church body. What are its priorities? What is its function? What is its goal? That's what Paul unpacks here. This is a marvelous passage on really beginning to understand the function and purpose of the local church. In the first century, when Paul wrote this, in the 21st century, when you and I are reading it. Now, we're not done with this passage yet, because there's a bit more that Paul wants to do. But are you with me? Any questions so far? I have a question. Um, I'm looking at the um, uh, speaking the truth in love builds itself up in love. Yeah, we're not there yet, but okay, go ahead. I haven't covered um, that yet. Uh, it's, um, in another thing, I think it's John, it says, God is love. And um, uh, love is agape, similar to these two here. Exactly. Um, and God is theos. So you've got the predicate nominative that says God is love. Right. Right. So theos is, uh, I'm not as familiar with that. I mean, obviously, root theology. But are we talking about the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the Trinity? And then, then we talk about this as a central concept that you're building toward in well, yes, passage. and in, well, when you were quoting there from First John chapter four, where two uh -huh. times in that chapter you see the predicate nominative of God is love, and that is a statement of the trinitarian nature of God. God is okay. trinity, and John nineteen or John five chapter nineteen, John chapter five verses nineteen through twenty four, is a very significant passage on detailing and unpacking the love between the Father and Son and what that accomplishes, why that's so important. And so, I mean, Russ, uh, just to add a little bit to this bunny trail, when, when you think of, of, of God before anything was created, you know, it's God before Genesis 1-1, was there love, was there love before Genesis 1-1? Yes. Yes. Why? Because Jesus tells us in John chapter 15, the Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father. The one thing we know when John says in 1 John chapter 4, God is love, that that defines that interpersonal connection between the members of the Godhead, Father, Son. So the, the Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Father, the Father and Son love the Spirit, the Spirit loves the Son. I mean, you just go on and on and on. And so that, that, that fantastic understanding that the Bible gives us, God is love, not just God manifests love, God shows love, which he does, but he is love. It's at the core of his being. And so as God is love, he wants to see this manifested in the institution he's created, and now has gifted for the purposes of, of equipping, for the purposes of edification, so that they will now show love. And so the God who is love wants us to also manifest that love, because that's what he is. And so you just make these incredibly important theological connections between the Trinitarian nature of God and his church. There is diversity in the unity of the Godhead. There's diversity in the unity of the church. And that unity of the church is going to be manifested in its exhibition of the quality of love, which is what God is. So it's a measure it of, is. The, of the, um, the unity, because it ties into the fruits of the spirits. It ties into 1 Corinthians 13. It ties into the Shema. Everything fits those pieces 
are kind of central and fitting together. And this is talking about the church. And I, I see something toward the, the end where God has to kind of overcome this, but that's like a revolutionary victory. And this seems more like an evolutionary victory. Um, well, I, it's, to me, it's a both and. I mean, it is revolutionary in, in that it, it's radical application to living out transforms everything. <laughs> but it is evolutionary, if you mean that in non-biological sense, of, right. of, of the aspect of sanctification, that this right. is developed and matures over time. And that's the, not just the individual sanctification, the way we think about that's, it, but the body of the church as a whole being sanctified and right. us supporting one another and loves what makes that possible. That's right. That's right. So I'm trying to understand how those kind of those pieces fit together with Revelation. Is it, you know, God just finally dealing with the last little bit of that? You got the thousand year. And I want to get off onto that. That's why I asked the question at this point. Then. Okay. All right. Thank you. Dr. Okay. Eckman, everybody else with me? Dr. Eckman, I have a question I'd like to ask you. Yeah, sure. Uh, aside from the um, clear positions that are represented here, the pastor, teacher, and so on, Right. Where are the rest of us? I mean, all of us on this broadcast, except you, are would not be considered as a pastor, and yet we must have some role in the local church as well uh, to accomplish some of these things. I mean, I can speak about the, the people who have played into my life who are not in any one of these roles, and yet they've been very pivotal and important to me. So I wonder if you could, is our role only to be built up, or do we have some kind of a responsibility associated with all of this well i think i think that responsibility uh in thinking about how we fit into this goes to goes back to verse 12 to equip the saints for the work of the ministry in the building up the edification of the body of christ and jim that's that steps a little bit beyond this passage into like first corinthians 12 or romans 12 where you see a pretty extensive uh, elucidation of the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives. And so, Jim, I mean, as, as you correctly said, and it would be true in my life, a, a lot of individuals that influenced me have not been uh, in church leadership. They've been in the church, and they had an incredibly important impact on my life. And that's that because they're gifted individuals, and in specific circumstances, specific situations, God really used them in my life in amazing ways in that process of sanctification. So, Jim, every one of us listening here to, to my voice in this, this Bible class, uh, as well as everyone that's a member of, 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 of the body of Christ, has been given gifts that we are to exercise for what? For the ministry of the body of Christ for the edification of the body of Christ. And those individuals whom you were speaking about that meant a lot to you personally, Jim, that's what they were doing. They were edifying you. They were building you up. They were encouraging you. They were admonishing you. They were counseling, whatever the specifics would be in your life. And that's the body of Christ at work. And it's not just what happens in that building on a Sunday morning. It's what happens all the other days of the week, at all times of the week, as the body of Christ is dispersed throughout the world to accomplish his purposes. And so it, it becomes exciting. And this is what this is why this was so radical and revolutionary in the first century, because people sensed they were a part of a massive movement that resulted from the resurrection of Jesus Christ, his ascension, and the coming of the Holy Spirit. And these people, it's an amazing thing to read in, in early history, how they understood that. And they're out, they are representing Christ in every area of life. And so you're equipping, you're edifying, and then they're being dispersed. And so it's not a role, excuse me, it's not a title you have as a pastor or an evangelist or something. You all are in one way or another have been equipped. You are, you, are, you are being admonished and encouraged, and you're out doing the work of ministry. Whether it's, now this is going to sound trite and ridiculous, whether it's helping an elderly lady across the street, you're representing Jesus, 
or whether it's it's helping meet a, an acute physical need of a person in your church or not in your church, as well as sharing your personal faith about Jesus Christ with someone. I mean, it's just there's no limit to what we can be doing as a part of the living body of Jesus Christ. We are a part of the movement. We are a part of, of the kingdom of God invading this rebellious planet. And the church is on the forefront of this invasion, if I can use that metaphor. And to be, when you understand it, to be a part of that, I told, I think I mentioned that here in, in, in this class, but last year before Christmas, I, I read a book by a British historian, Tom Holland, called Dominion, How Christianity Revolutionized the World. Uh, it's a big, thick book, but it, it's one of the most amazing books I've read in a long time. Because what Holland is doing is telling this story. And incidentally, Tom Holland is not a Christian. He's writing this and as an historian. He's written some very important books on Rome and the, the demise of the Roman Republic. But he decided, I have got to study this movement called Christianity. Because it was Christianity that helped bring down the Roman Empire. How did they do that? Why did the, why did the Christian church endure and Rome fell apart? Today, you go to Rome, what you see is ruins. But you go to Omaha, Nebraska, you see thousands and thousands of people in some buildings representing Christ. The church has endured because of what we're studying right now. What Paul is unleashing in this passage is what Jesus said, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it, Matthew chapter 16. And Paul is describing for us how this works and what this is supposed to look like. That was a long good night, Jim. I answered that in, what, five minutes? I apologize for taking so long to do that. But this is stuff that's exciting to me. All right, I hope I answered your question. Are there any other? All right. If there are none, look with me then at chapter 4, uh, excuse me, verse 14 through the end of this section. So that, now I, I'm trying to be really specific here. This is a result clause. So that we may no longer be children. Now there, there you see this idea of maturity, the stature, those terms that we just read about in verse 13. So they're no longer children. Like a little child, he, he, he's not meaning here, you know, a three-year-old. He's talking about spiritual infancy. We just come to faith in Jesus Christ. And many people who come to faith in Jesus Christ know almost nothing about the Christian faith. They cannot tell you a definition of the Trinity. Cannot explain to you how Jesus is the God-man. Cannot explain to you what the rapture means. I'm just using examples. There are no longer children. What, what does that mean? You're no longer tossed to and fro by the waves and carried away by every wind of doctrine. And so Paul's zeroing in how important it is to have a unity of faith in the knowledge of the Son of God, verse 13, the measure and fullness of Christ, verse four, thir end of verse 13. So we're growing up in the faith. The process of sanctification is working. And the intended result of that is we're not kicked around, not mauled over, not disrupted, not dysfunctionally overcome by false teaching, by false doctrine. And Paul characterizes that by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. When you go back in and read 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, those passages alert us to the critical importance of sound doctrine. And what Paul is saying is if this is not being taught, you will always remain spiritual infants, and you'll be mauled over by the deceitful schemes of false doctrine. Let me ask you a question rhetorically here. If you were Satan and you were trying to destroy 
this most important institution of God, the church. What would be your strategies? Well, for me, and I see this, strategy number one is pick off the leaders. That's why Paul spent so much time in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, zeroing in on make sure you choose spiritually mature leaders. He says, don't choose someone who's just come to faith, because they're like a spiritual child. They need to grow up into maturity. And if you don't, then your leadership is going to constantly, constantly be picked off. Moral failure of a, a spiritual leader is devastating. Moral failure of a spiritual leader is catastrophic. You want a recent example of that? Ravi Zacharias. He was one of my heroes. I've read most of his books. When I found he just died, but it's been uncovered, and his board has now come out and said everything that's been said about his sexual and escapades was true. They did not hold him accountable. It's devastating to a critical ministry. The second thing I do is I would attack the matter of doctrine. I would do everything I can to disrupt the teaching of sound doctrine, because then people will be open to the false teachings that sow discord and divisiveness in the local church. So what is Paul saying? So that you grow up spiritually. This process that he's describing coming from these gifted individuals, is to bring spiritual maturity so that you're no longer be beaten up by, sound, by false doctrine. Rather, he says, verse 15, speaking the truth in love, we are able to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. And Russ asked about this just a little bit ago, but speaking the truth. Now, the truth there takes you back to 1 Timothy chapter 3, I believe it's in verse 16, a very high view of the church in that passage, but Paul says the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth, the pillar and foundation of the, of the truth. And so it is the church that is to dispense the truth, but you speak the truth in love, because God's Word is confrontational, God's Word, it makes you feel uncomfortable. God's Word can be, in a sense, a little bit disruptive in our lives because it's calling us to holiness and righteousness. But you're speaking the truth in love. We're not condemning people. We're not putting people on a false guilt trip. We're go back to the previous passages here in, in, in Ephesians chapter 4, what, what are we doing? Unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Maturity and, and the fullness of Christ being developed in its stature in our lives. You're speaking the truth in love. The spiritual leaders of the church are speaking the truth in love. This makes you feel uncomfortable. It makes you feel a, 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 little, bit, a little bit antsy because, oh my, I, I don't measure up. That's okay admonishment, exhortation. That's hard. But you go back and look at the teaching of, of Jesus. You go back and read, as we are doing right now, the writings of Paul. He's speaking the truth in love. And so that we will grow up in every way into Jesus, who's the head of the church, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And I drew an arrow because you, you see this, this tremendous, tremendous description of the body of Christ growing with the head Jesus Christ, growing. Everyone's equipped, doing what God wants them to do as the body is built up in love. The body isn't built up by coercion, the body is not built up by fostering false guilt. The body's not built up by condemnation. The body's built up by love. And that takes you back to, for example, John chapter 16, where Jesus washes the disciples' feet, the Son of God doing the work of a servant, a servant leader. We build ourselves up in love. That, and as Russ said earlier, that is agape. 
That's that self-sacrificing, other-centered love. I serve others because my Savior served me. And so and we've been on this now almost this entire hour. But what you see here from verse 11 to verse 16, which we've now spent 45 minutes on, one of the most important descriptions of what the local church is to be doing. Its priority is the revealed truth, the Word of God. Its goal is spiritual maturity. Help people who come to faith in Christ grow up spiritually. And that is the process of sanctification. So one of the means, one of the instruments of sanctification, that process of being conformed to the image of Christ, that instrument is the local church. And if the local church is not doing what we see in these verses, do not be surprised if you have an entire flock of spiritual children. Nobody's growing up because they've not been admonished, exhorted, and confronted with the Word of God, speaking that truth in love. So it's just, it's one of my favorite passages of Scripture on the importance of the local church in doing what God wants the local church to do as the instrument of His sanctifying grace, growing people spiritually. Got it? All right. I heard one yep. I know you all have it on sound, but if, if I'm not hearing from him, then I'm, I'm pretty certain you've got this. This is, uh, this is so important for you and me today. I gave you this little diagram of just how to connect Ephesians 4. You have this in that, that package of slides that was sent to you uh, last week, I believe it was. But God gave, and then these individuals, gifted leaders, for the purpose of equipping of the saints until... Unity is achieved. Everybody's growing up material. So this is a process that's ongoing. It's ongoing. It's ongoing. It's ongoing. And every generation is to look like this. And every generation who's in, and, and let me put it another way, every generation of leaders, spiritual leaders, this is how you're to see that it's equipping people to do the work of the ministry, helping to edify and build up so that everybody is growing into maturity in Christ. Yeah, the church is the key instrument of the sanctifying grace of God in his body. All right. Well, boy, I wish I could give you a big thought paper assignment because this is such an important section. Well, let's move on to the second major category. Each time we get to one of these categories, I'll review this. Sound doctrine, verses chapters 1 through 3, produces godly living, chapters 4 through 6. And in this segment, verse 17 through 32, the walk of holiness. That's what I've called this. But to introduce this, I want to go back to a passage in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. This is a, this is a, a wonderful passage on the process of sanctification. And what I want you to see, and you see the text there, Philippians 2, 12, and 13, and you see that little diagram that I drew at the bottom on sanctification. So let me look at the middle of verse 12 and read verse 13. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it's a guard there, meaning because it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so you have to, as we do, you know, our observation, interpretation, and application, our observation, first question is, when Paul says, work out your salvation, what does he mean by that? The Greek word is soterion. It's a normal noun for salvation in the Greek New Testament. But as you know, and I'm reviewing this, I think you all have heard me teach this many, many times, soterion, salvation, has three steps to it. Justification, followed by sanctification, which culminates in glorification. Justification is when we put our faith in Jesus, we're declared righteous. Sanctification, which is what we were talking about, is that process of being conformed to the image of Christ. And glorification is when the Lord comes back for us, uh, and at the rapture, First Thessalonians 4, we receive a glorified, resurrected body. And so, it's apply that. 
work out your justification with fear and trembling? It can't be that. Because if we studied this in chapter 2, for by grace through faith you're saved. It's a gift of God. So it can't be justification. And it certainly isn't glorification when we receive our resurrected body. He's talking about sanctification. And so we're busy actively pursuing holiness. Why? Because God is at work, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And so you see, sanctification is a process of me walking in loving obedience with God, because God is at work within me. We just read a major passage in Ephesians chapter 4, under that walk of unity, of how instrumentally important the local church is in this process. God works through the local church, so that we then walk in loving obedience. This is what Paul is talking about in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 32. Now, it's, I can't believe it. It's almost a quarter of one, so I can only introduce this. Because notice in verse 17, the word walk. As I told you, that's how I've outlined this for chapters 4 through 6 of Ephesians. Wherever Paul uses the walk, he's talking about the term walk. He's talking about some different aspect. So he had introduced the concept of sanctification, no longer like children, being mature, having the stature of the fullness of Christ, which we just read about. Paul, elaborate a little more on that for me. It's almost like someone in Ephesus is saying, Paul, explain this a little more to me. Explain to me my role in this. That's what he starts to do. And what I'm going to want you to do, and this, we'll deal with this next week because we're almost out of time, but when you look at verses 22, 23, and 24, you see a template of the process of sanctification. You see a framework. You see a grid for how we should look at and think about the process of sanctification. I'm going to look at it now real quickly, because I want to whet your appetite for what I want to do next week. But look at verse 22. Step one, you put off the old self, which belongs to that former manner of life, which he described much, much, much earlier, uh, earlier here in verses 17, 18, and 19. Then step two, be renewed in the spirit of your minds. How do you renew your mind? You go to Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2. It is the Word of God that is that key instrument and means by which, by which our mind is renewed. And then step three, you put on the new, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Uh, men, that, that, those three verses is an incredibly valuable summary what does my role in the sanctifying process look like? It's a role of intentional, willful, loving obedience. And I want to talk extensively about this next week. I want to elaborate in great detail from this passage what Paul is talking about in Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Work out your sanctification with fear and trembling, because God's at work in you. You are serious about your walk because God is serious about your walk. And so this framework that he lays out in verses 17 through 22, 32, is a marvelous summary of what this looks like. And in verse 25 through 32, he chooses five illustrations. This isn't comprehensive, this isn't exhaustive. He chooses five, five key examples of what he means. What do you do with falsehood in your life? What do you do with anger in your life? What do you do if you have a propensity to steal? What do you do if your language and your talk is not edifying, but just the opposite? And what do you do with those inner attitudes and motivations? And Paul's going to use that. Put off, renew your mind, put on. He's going to use it with five illustrations. So next week, this is what we're going to focus on, the second walk of the believer. It's the walk of holiness, the sanctifying walk of being conformed and transformed 
into the image of Jesus. That's what he's going to talk about next week. Okay, you got it? Yes. Got it. Yep. I want to whet your appetite for next week. So none of you can be absent next week. You must be here. Of course, you can attach it through what Joe does for us. All right, I'm going to get out of this, and I'm going to pray, and then I'll let you go, and I will see you next week. All right? Let's pray. Father, we're really grateful for the Word of God. It is the key to speaking the truth in love. It is the key to growing us up into maturity. It's the key that we're no longer like spiritual children, tossed and hammered and absolutely devastated by false or incorrect teaching. Help us to be men strongly committed to the integrity of your word, strongly committed to what you represent, the holiness and the devotion and loyalty to you. You are Savior. You're our Lord. You are now the one whom we serve. You're our King, and you promised to come back for us. So between the time we trusted you until you come back for us, we want to represent you well. We want to be your ambassadors. Help us to be equipped for ministry. Help us to have that, that strong sense of unity of understanding of what the Christian faith is all about. And a Bible class like this, has that's one of its goals. That's one of the reasons we do this. So I trust each one of these dear folks to you. Lord, they have needs. They have special areas of concern, special struggles that you know about. And Lord, we pray for one another. We don't pray to give you information. You have that. You're omniscient. We pray to cultivate the deep relationship that you're calling us to, a loving relationship of walking with you. So be with each one of the members of our class. Help them through these, these days and weeks. You know, give them the energy, the enablement, the empowerment to represent you well, for they are your salt and light in this world. Trust each one of them to you. I thank you for each one of them. Commit them to you in the name of Christ. Amen. See you next week, guys. Thank you, Jim. Take care. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you, Jim. Have a good week. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.